You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, in 1983, Ronald Reagan made the third Monday in January a holiday commemorating and celebrating the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And in light of that, our normal sort of rhythms in January is to take one of those middle Sundays um, in this month and give it to talk about the issue of race and our church's pursuit of diversity. And so that's where we're sort of headed today and what we're going to walk into today. And I want to just start by giving you a couple of reasons why. Um, Why does our church care about these things? Why are we pursuing these sorts of things as a church family? Uh, And let me give you two reasons why. Uh, Two of the the many that that we could lay out. But here, here are the two. One is... And this is the primary reason. It's because Jesus cares about these things. We care because Jesus cares. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uh, tells us that Jesus died to break down the walls that exist between us and God and the walls that exist between us and others. Jesus died for these reasons. And Paul is specifically thinking about the deep divides between Jew and Gentile. And that divide in New Testament times was as deep as any divide between any groups of people that there ever has been. It was a deep divide. And Paul's saying in Ephesians 2 that the gospel isn't just a bridge between us and God. The gospel is also a battering ram that breaks down every wall between us and others. The gospel functions like that, to do that sort of wall-breaking work. And you know what's amazing about it? Is it's worked. If you look in the book of Acts in Acts 13, the battering ram of the gospel unified a very diverse church in Antioch under the banner of Jesus. It's an amazing picture if you look at Acts 13. And to be clear, divided ethnicities, reconciling and becoming a unified church family is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it does spring from the heart of the gospel. These sorts of things, a church diversified, unified under Jesus, it's one fruit produced from the tree of the gospel. It's one beautiful uh, fruit uh, produced from that tree. Uh, Maybe you could say it this way. How we as a church and the church globally, how we as a church deal with issues of race either magnifies or mars the beauty of the gospel. And then if you keep reading forward in the scriptures, what the early church in Antioch shows is possible. One one church unified under Jesus, diverse Uh, What it shows is possible, John, at the end of the scriptures, sees in its perfection. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, John says, and and he just, this is a view of heaven. He's got a sneak peek, a glimpse at what's to come. He says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This passage shows us that God isn't colorblind. Jesus sees ethnicities. And and he's saying, the the bride that I died to create, it is a multicultural bride. 
It's got a little bit of everything in there. That's the bride that Jesus died to create. So if you are in Christ, you have an incredibly bright future. Your best days are ahead. But the scriptures show us that that bright future is a multi-ethnic future. That is the bride Jesus died to create. That's the future Jesus died to secure. So we care because Jesus cares. And secondly, um, issues around race are just inescapable for our church family. If you just look at the country we're in, our nation is growing increasingly diverse. In 2021, there will be more minorities baby, uh, minority babies born than there will be majority culture babies born. In the next two decades, the U.S. population will have no majority ethnicity. So, so that's just where the Lord has us. Th- these issues are going to continue uh, to be front and center and right in the middle of the church of Jesus. But it's not just that our country is growing more diverse. Our local community is growing more diverse. Uh, the University of Virginia, they mapped the United States um, with dots. And each dot represents a person. And each dot is color-coded by ethnicity, which it's just amazing. There's so many uh, interesting things to look at. Um, It's amazing to me how if you just watch the patterns that exist right now in our country, how those patterns, just take housing as a for instance, were set decades ago. And they're still lingering into our present uh, day. Uh, But this map is built around blue being white, green being African-American, and orange being um, Hispanic brothers and sisters. And, and there's other colors and, and so on in the map. But I just want to make one uh, observation. Uh, you can see the map up on the screen behind me. And down at the bottom, that's Midlothian in that red circle. And I just want you to see the colors, the, the multiple colors around Midlothian. And I think it's good for all of us just to recognize there are going to be a lot of beautiful green and orange dots added to Midlothian. That just, that is part of what's in the future for Midlothian. Now, when you think about that, when you see that dot map and the implications of that dot map, just pay attention to what happens in you. What what does that cause you to to feel and to think? And, And I'll just tell you what it does to me. When I look at that dot map, I feel such a deep thankfulness to Jesus. Such a deep thankfulness to Jesus. Um, I think every church ought to, as just one of their aims, uh, they ought to seek to look like their community. So whatever their community looks like, it should be mirrored in their church. And, And friends, it's amazing for me to think that God is providentially creating a diverse city around us. So that as our church looks more like our diverse city, we will also look more like our future in heaven. That's amazing to me. I just, I am so thankful that God's put us in a place where that's true. Where as we look more like our city, we are looking more like the coming city of God. It's amazing to think about. And church, I just so want us to to take that opportunity. to to walk into that invitation that the Lord has set before us to look more and more like our future home. So with that said, here's the the way in that I want to talk about this issue uh, this year. I want us to consider Psalm 13. It's a psalm of lament. 
And I want to consider this sort of category of psalm, the psalms of lament, and this psalm in particular, Psalm 13, with you. So we're going to take it in a couple of parts. We're going to talk about the purpose of lament, the pattern of lament, and then how lament helps. The purpose, the pattern, and then how it helps. So let's start with the purpose of lament. To see the purpose of those psalms of lament, like Psalm 13, to see the purpose of those psalms, we first have to take a step back and think about the purpose of the psalms as a whole. The, the psalms are given to us so that we can then give them back to God in prayer. I mean, think about the Bible as a whole. The rest of the Bible is written to us. The psalms are the one place in the Bible written from us up to God. The Psalms are given to us so that we can give them back to God in prayer. Throughout church history, the Psalms have been God's training tool to teach God's people how to pray. So if you want to learn how to pray, if you want to grow in your prayer life, just read through the Psalms and pray the Psalms. And as you start reading the Psalms and praying the Psalms, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that the Psalms are for every season of your life. You're going to find psalms that are just written from the highest of highs. I mean, just joy bursting out of a human heart. And you're going to find psalms for the lowest of lows, where deep grief spills out of the human heart. And here is what's most shocking about the psalms. These songs of sorrow, these psalms that are really just prayers for our pain, these psalms of lament make up one-third of the psalms. There's 150 psalms, and roughly one-third of those are psalms of lament. Now, what is lament? Mark Vrogup, he wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's a book on just the grace of lament in the scriptures. He defines it this way, and I love his definition. He says, lament is a prayer in pain, that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. And lament is a learned prayer language. And it's a language that every person in this room, you, me, us collectively, every one of us are going to need this learned prayer language. Now, why is that? Well, east of Eden, we all live in a world that we really weren't made to inhabit. Because of sin, life is now lived under a curse. Or as C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a world that's always winter but never Christmas. Or as Paul says in Romans 8, it's a world that really has been subjected to futility. Just think about the storyline of the scriptures for a moment. God creates our first parents, Adam and Eve. He puts them in a garden and it was perfect. Everything you want life to be but it isn't, that's the life our first parents had in Genesis 1 and 2. And that lasted all of two chapters. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents rebelled against God by eating that forbidden fruit. And with that sin, the curse set in and unstoppable evil was unleashed into God's creation. One of the things I appreciate most about the Bible is its honesty. And when you start to read forward from Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible... The Bible's, the Bible's presentation of evil and suffering is just bone-jarring in its honesty. 
Genesis 4 on, you find war and murder and famine and slavery and genocide and greed and incest and abuse and betrayal and loss and lying and divorce and just absolute devastation. You find death, rebellion, anarchy. You find it all as you read forward in the scriptures. So what do you do and what do I do and what do we do? when this broken world breaks into our lives? What do you do when suffering shows up unannounced in your life and like a squatter just refuses to leave? What do we do? Well, if you just watch what people do, one response is silence. And the scriptures are clear that silence in our suffering is a soul killer. Silence leads to bitterness leads to anger, eventually leads to us walking away from Jesus. But there's another response to our suffering. We can learn the language of lament. Lament is how we bring our sorrows to God. It's how we process the pain that comes uh, along with life in this broken world. When life knocks us down, it's how followers of Jesus stay out of the ditch of despair on one side, just sinking down into our sorrows, and denial on the other, just burying our head and acting like we don't have any sorrows. It's how we stay out of those ditches. You can think about the purpose of lament this way. In lament, we take what's on this side, the pain of life in this broken world. And then what's on this side, the beautiful promises of God. And lament stands between these two things and it brings them together and it puts our pain inside of the promises of God so that we can live well in this broken world. That's the purpose of lament. This is why God has given us the gift of lament. And lament is a gift. It's an agonizingly beautiful gift that God gives to help his people live well, in pain, in sorrows, in in their grief. This is the purpose of lament. Now the pattern, the pattern. Think about the similarities we all had when we came into the world. You come into the world and you, like every other human being, came in doing what? Crying. We all came in that way. And you know what's amazing about crying? Your parents didn't have to teach you how. They didn't have to teach you to do it. It was just innately in the human heart. When you came across something you didn't like, you cried. That's just innate to all of us. But although we didn't have to learn how to cry, we do have to learn lament. Lament is a learned language. And the Psalms are our primary teacher. If we want want our pain to be shaped into prayer, We need a teacher. We need the Psalms to show us how that's done. So if you read through the Psalms, and in particular these 50 Psalms of Lament, you're going to find a common pattern. And that common pattern is made of four parts or four movements. And here are the movements. Movement number one is what you might label a turn. It's turning, a turn. It's turning to God in prayer. You see this in Psalm 13. The first phrase, how long... Oh Lord, oh oh Lord, 
Now, now think about those words, oh Lord, what that's doing. That is the psalmist opening up his pain to God. That's the psalmist not being silent in his suffering. The psalmist isn't just talking to himself about his suffering. The psalmist isn't talking to his neighbor about his suffering. The psalmist is talking to who? To to God, right? He is talking to God about his suffering. And I don't want us to miss it. That is an amazing act of faith. He is opening up his pain to God. That is what faith in our pain looks like. That is faith crawling out of our heart up to God. It's an amazing moment. He's opening up his life and his sorrows and his pain to God. He's bringing all of that with him to God and he's talking to God about his pain. Now, let me just stop here. There are many in this room who this morning, your life is full of sorrows. And I I think Psalm 13 would ask you this question. Are you inviting God into your sorrows? Who are you talking to about your sorrows? Maybe it's nobody. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's another person. But the psalmist is asking you the question, David is asking you the question, are you talking to God about these things? Are you opening up your pain to God? That's movement one. It's a turn to God in prayer. And then here's movement two. It's to complain. Movement two is complaint. How long, O Lord? How how long? You see that phrase, how long, show up four times in this psalm. How long? That is meant to be a hammer that is just pounding on our life. How long, O Lord? The, The psalmist brings a barrage of complaints against God. God, will you forget me forever? That's the psalmist looking around and saying, there are things wrong in this world, O God, and how long are you going to wait to fix them? When when the psalmist is, when David is accusing God of forgetting here, when he's questioning God's remembrance, that's, that's what he's questioning. God, how long will it be before you act? Are you going to forget this forever, O God? And then he goes on, how long will you hide your face from me? With God's face came his favor and blessing. And David here is saying, God, how long will you withhold your help? How long will you withhold your felt favor and felt blessing? How long, O Lord? Verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? When I read verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 13, one of the questions that it brings about in me is, is it okay to pray like this? I mean, can we really just sort of hurl our complaints against God like this? And the Psalms over and over again are saying to us, yes, that's okay. It's always better to pray our complaints than it is to push them down. It's always better to pray them to pray our questions, to pray our complaints. When we push them down, they they metastasize into bitterness and resentment and anger toward God that just spreads throughout our heart. In complaint, we're saying to God, there are things wrong that need to be righted. And complaints bring those wrongs to God. 
to the one person who has the power to do something about them. So does your prayer life have complaints toward God in it? Turning to God, opening up our pain, and then complaint to God. God, there are things wrong. Please write them. Movement one, turn. Movement two, complain. Movement three is to ask. Look at verse three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. After verbalizing his complaints, David's pain moves him to petition God. To ask things from God. He says, consider. God, consider. Answer me, O God. David's saying, I am about to die. My eyes are growing dim. God, I am so weary. So, so God, will you relight up my eyes? God, would you put new life into my dying bones? God, help me. He asks things from God. Movement one is to turn. Movement two is to complain. Movement three is to ask. And then movement four is to trust. He comes to God in faith and expresses his trust in God. Look at verses five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing. I may not be singing right now, but I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The biggest word in Psalm 13 is only three letters long. It's that word, but. That's the biggest word. God, all I have is tears, but I'm going to trust in you. God, I am dying right now. I am sinking into despair, but I know that one day my heart will rejoice again. God, I can't get words out of my mouth right now, but, but God, I know that one day I'm going to sing to you again. God, I know that one day I'm going to. God, I know that Psalm 30, verse 5 is true, that weeping may tarry for the night, but God, I know that joy is going to come in the morning. Why do I know that? Because God, you have dealt bountifully with me. Because my story is one of grace. When I look back over my life, I can see moment after moment where you have entered my story with mercy and compassion and grace and help. So God, I know that even when I can't see your hand, I can trust your heart. God, I know I can trust you. Lament helps us see through the pain of our life all the way to our promise-keeping God. So let me pause here and just ask that question. Have you learned that language of lament? In your sorrows, are you turning to God, complaining, asking, expressing your trust in God? Have you learned the language of lament? We're all going to need it. Some in this room desperately need it this morning. And for the rest of us, we're going to need it. It's just a matter of time before we need it. Have you learned the language of lament? Now, I, I want to spend the rest of our time applying this. H how does lament help? 
How does it help? And um, obviously the applications are for every person in this room, in particular where your sorrows and suffering are today. But I wanna apply it uh, particularly to the area of race. How does it help us in race relations? And I, you know, just to be clear here, there's no single silver bullet. Those don't exist. There's no single thing we're gonna do that walks us through the valley of our racial divides and up the other side of the mountain. There's just no single thing. We, we often, though, encourage four things for everyone in our church to consider. When you're asking the question, what can I do? Four things to consider. One, and we just use four L's for these. One is to listen, to develop relationships, and then listen well. To, to develop relationships across racial lines and listen well. To learn. That happens best in the context of relationships there are many great resources, books to read to help just learn. So listen and learn. Number three is to lament. And number four is to love. That's the action-oriented side of that. So listen, learn, lament, and love. And today I just want to emphasize that third L, lament. And the reason I want to emphasize it is because it's so often, often missing in racial conversations. It is so hard to find lament in the middle of, of racial difficulties and strife. I agree with Mark Vrogup when he says, lament provides the, the tracks along which the pain of racial issues can move forward. And on the other side, when the tracks of lament aren't there, when, when they don't exist, when lament is just strangely missing, our sorrows and our racial pains have a way of getting stuck. So lament is helpful. It, it's good. And let me just give you two gifts that lament brings us. How lament helps in these issues. Number one, lament leads to perseverance. Lament leads to perseverance. To be faithful to Jesus in a world that hates Jesus, it requires the people of God to say what's wrong in the world. And at the same time, not to get sucked into those wrongs. And that's really hard to do. To say what's wrong without doing wrong and getting sucked into wrong. The, the people of God have to faithfully persevere. Now think about lament for a moment. It's not just a, an emotional response to, to what's wrong in the world. It's also a theological response. In lament, we are saying to God, these things are wrong. These things don't align with your heart, O oh God. Lament, in a lot of ways, is an act of protest. It's saying to God and to the world, these things are broken and they've got to be fixed. And we know that one day God is going to fix them. But in protesting what's broken, we often get sucked into the brokenness. In resisting wrong, we often do wrong. But lament is one of God's gifts to his people. It's one way that we can protest what's wrong in this world, while faithfully persevering, not getting sucked into the wrong. Again, think about, think about that picture. You've got two sides, the pain in this broken world and the promises of God. And lament brings these together and wraps the promises of God around our pain. And when the promises of God are wrapped around our pain, faithful perseverance is enabled. It's created. The capacity for faithful perseverance is given to the people of God. When I just think about back around, you know, over the last decade of, of just my life, engaging in reconciling work, a couple of observations over the last decade. One is that it's a lot harder than I thought. 
Um, Two is that it takes a lot longer than I thought. And three is that everyone on every side of these issues faces a constant temptation to give up. Because it takes longer and it's harder, we all have to fight the temptation to give up. And I just want to take a moment and say to all of my minority brothers and sisters in the room, I just want to first just say thank you for your endurance. It would be so much easier to go find a church with people who everyone generally kind of looks more like you and thinks more like, it would just be so easy to do that. And so thank you for enduring in that and not giving up and throwing in the towel. Thank you for sticking it out. I just want to encourage you, don't give up in the future. Stay in there. The the beauty of that multi-ethnic future is worth bringing into our present world now, into the church now. So please don't give up. And to my majority culture, brothers and sisters, just a similar word to you. Don't don't give up. It's so easy for, for you to go to a church that would not preach this message this morning. It'd be so easy for you to to, to sort of surround your life with people who everybody looks like you, thinks just like you. It'd be so easy for that. And I just want to encourage you, don't give up. When conversations are difficult, when they're uncomfortable, when you see things differently, don't bail. Fight that temptation to give up. Stay in it. And when it comes to perseverance, I think the church universal has so much to learn from the faithful perseverance of the African-American church in American history. I think we have so much to learn. If you just look back over the last several hundred years of the African-American just church history, it is marked by suffering. Absolutely marked by it. And by the way, that suffering uh, didn't stop a, a few hundred years ago or 50 years. It's all the way into the present. It is marked, it's a history marked by suffering. A few weeks ago, I read a paragraph where Harriet Jacobs, she described members of a family being broken up during slavery. This child sold there, that child sold over here, husband there, wife there all to never see each other again in this life. And when I read that, I just wept. Cannot imagine the depths of that pain. That pain that continued through the 1900s, through the civil rights, all the way to today. And it's amazing when I think about how that deep pain came out in prayer through song. And now the church is gifted the spirituals. Again, Mark Vrogrup, he says, the leading category of lament in American history are the spirituals. What has been under the amazing, persevering faithfulness of the African-American church? Lament. That's what's been under it. The more we lament, the more the promises of God wrap around our pain and the more the people of God persevere. So just take a look at your life right now. Where is suffering and difficulty and hardship tempting you to throw in the towel, to just quit? Let lament create new perseverance in you. When it comes to racial issues, are you having to fight that temptation to quit, 
to throw in the towel. Let lament create new perseverance in you. This is one function of lament. It leads to perseverance. Here's another help that lament has for us. Lament leads to empathy. It leads to empathy. As we learn to lament, our capacity for empathy increases. And if there is one thing conversations around race need, it's empathy. What is empathy? Empathy is the ability to get into the shoes of another, to see the world from their vantage point, to understand what they feel, why they feel that, and then to enter into that and feel that with them. That's empathy. Empathy is taking the burdens and weights and worries and sorrows of another person and making them your own. Their tears become your tears. Their sorrows become your sorrows. Their pain becomes your pain. And empathy is not optional in the Christian life. It's not an optional sort of add-on. You can take it or leave it. No, no, it's not optional. In Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Now just notice there in Romans 12, that's a command. It's not optional. That is from God to all of his people. Rejoice with people when they're rejoicing. When people are, are weeping, you enter into those tears and you weep with them. That, that's a command from God. Now, let me pause there and ask you this question. When is the last time you have encountered a person in the house of mourning, weeping, and you've been able to enter that house with them and weep with them? When's the last time that's happened? I mean, you've literally been able to cry with another human being that just had the breath knocked out of them by life. Has that ever happened for you? See, one of the things lament does is it enables that capacity for us to weep with those who weep. And I love the insight that H.B. Charles gives us when he says, Talking about Romans chapter 12, he says, the Bible calls us to weep with those who weep. Now listen to what he says. It doesn't tell us to judge whether they should be weeping. It doesn't say you sit back and and analyze all the little things about their weeping and just you answer the question, should they? No, it just says you enter into their tears and you weep with them. Now, to give just marriage imagery to maybe help with that, husbands, picture the moment where your wife comes home after a really hard day and she is in tears. She needs to cry. And it's happening right there before your eyes. Now, what do you do in that moment? Uh, Do you take a step back and you say, "Um, babe, let's go through your day starting at 7 a.m. and let's talk about every minute of your day. Because I need to see if you should be crying right now. I need to know if there was enough pain in your life today to justify your crying. And after we've gone through the analyzation of your day, babe, I've got I've to say this. You need to suck it up. Right? Is, that, is that how that moment's going to go? No, that's not how that moment's going to go. Husbands, here's a clue in that moment. You wrap your arms around your wife. 
You provide a safe place for tears. You enter the house of mourning and you pray that God would give you the capacity to cry with them. That's empathy. That's what's needed in that moment. And ironically, the next command in Romans chapter 12 is live in harmony with one another. And I actually think there's a a link between empathy and living in harmony. Shared tears have a way of tying us together. Shared tears have a way of helping us live in harmony with one another. And that is true across marriage lines and across racial lines. I love one author when he's just trying to give helpful encouragement to those in the majority culture. He he says this, when it comes to racial reconciliation, I think we should approach the conversation as we would if a dear friend experienced a deep loss. Our first step should be to sit beside the grieving individual, love the person, listen, and lament. Like, rather than coming armed with your set of facts, rather than coming armed with your hot take and your opinion of the day, we come armed and ready to weep. When I think back about, just over the last four or five years of my life, there's one interesting moment that I've thought about so often. A few years ago, Uh, Laura and I were fostering, and we were just in the throes of such a difficult moment. And a friend of mine showed up at the door, and I opened it, and he looked at me and said, man, I, uh, I felt like the Lord was asking me to come over today. And he said, I don't think it was to say a single word. I think it was just to cry with you. And man, I think back about that moment so often with just such a deep thankfulness. It was such a helpful moment for me. And what's true in deep moments of grief like that and what's true in reconciliation, reconciling work, is that lament, weeping with those who weep, is helpful. It's helpful. And here's the problem with racial conversations. Tears are just too often missing. There are no tears to be found. And when there are no tears to be found, the tracks that our sorrow moves on, they they disappear. We, We get stuck in our sorrows. So let me just give you what we'll just call an empathy test. Micah Edmondson, he's an African American pastor, he gave a lecture called is is black lives matter the next civil rights movement and he gave this lecture to the leaders of the gospel coalition and after working through some affirmations and and critiques of of blm and its differences from the civil rights movement he, he went on to give this paragraph it's really just i would just call it a pastoral plea and here's what he said he said my wife has to beg me a grown 37-year-old man not to go out to Walmart at night. Not because she's afraid of the criminal element, but because she's afraid of the police element. 
because she knows that when the police see me, they aren't going to see Micah Edmondson, a pastor of New City Fellowship Presbyterian Church. When they see me, they aren't going to see Micah Edmondson, PhD in systematic theology. When they see me, all they're going to see is a black man out late at night. And she knows we're getting stopped at 10 times the rate of everybody else, arrested at 26 times the rate of everybody else, and killed at five times the rate of everybody else. Black Lives Matter can see the injustice in those statistics. How can Black Lives Matter see the value of black lives better than we can? Why does Black Lives Matter care more about the value of my life than you do? Now, I want to take a moment just to allow you to pay attention to your own heart and to listen to your own heart for a moment. And here's the question I want you to consider, is where did your heart first go when you just absorbed and listened to that paragraph? Like, where does your heart jump? Where, do, where does your mind jump when you hear that? Uh, maybe it's to um, the statistics that he threw out. And so you come armed and ready to, for war with your set of statistics. Uh, maybe it was the three words, black lives matter, and you're ready to litigate that down to the nth degree, uh, the, the harm of that. Uh, maybe it's um, his fear of the police and how crazy and unjustified that sounds to you. But I wonder how many of us, our first sort of reflexive response is to weep with an African-American pastor whose wife is terrified for him to go out after dark. I wonder if we have the capacity to enter into that house of mourning with tears. I wonder if God's gifted us with that empathy yet. Can you empathize with that? Can you get into another person's shoes, see from their vantage point through their eyes, feel what another person feels, and then weep with them in that? Gosh, I've got such a long way to go in this. And when I think about the last, really, decade of my life, one of the sweetest gifts the Lord has given me are dear friendships with minority brothers and sisters who I've been able to listen to and then weep with. And man, I pray that for all of us, that the Lord would gift us that that the Lord would gift us that. Let me close with this. John Perkins, he was a civil rights activist, dear brother in Jesus. He's authored several books. One is called One Blood. He said this, there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. The government's not better equipped to do that. There's not a nonprofit out there better equipped. The church is best equipped. And then he goes on to say, but we have some hard work to do. And that's true. In church, lament is where we can begin. It's a step we can take together. Would you pray with me?
want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And I know enough of the last six months in our church's life to know that the sorrows run deep in this room. The loss of moms and dads, the loss of sons and daughters, wayward children, the disintegration of marriages, watching a mom and dad divorce. I just know all that's in this room and countless others. And God has gifted us a language called lament to open our pains to him and talk about those things with him. We get to turn to God in lament, invite him into our pains. We get to offer our complaints to God. We get to ask God, to ask God for help. And we get to express our trust in God as his promises wrap around our pains. And our team today is going to sing through Psalm 13. And in a lot of ways, it's just going to be sung over you. You're welcome to join in if you would like. But it's meant to be sung over you so that you can hear the words of Psalm 13 and to turn it into your own prayer. For you to use it as a way for you to lament for you to bring your pain to the Lord. So Father, would you meet us now? God, would you meet us in our sorrows and our suffering? God, would you meet us in the difficulties of this life? God, would you help us? Oh God, would you help us? God, as we lament, as your promises wrap around our pain, may it lead to faithful perseverance. May it lead to new capacities for empathy. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.